Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonabello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. Welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. Once again, as I promised in the last segment, I'm joined again by Don Schmidt. We've been talking about uh, what's been going on in the last uh, year in ufology. One of the things before we took our week-long hiatus here was a discussion of a book called um, Einstein uh, in, in Roswell, New Mexico, or something like that. Well, oh, when, when Einstein went to Roswell is what the name of the book by Peter Strasberg. I mentioned that you could scroll down and listen to my interview with him, but it turns out that's not possible because there was a technical problem. At his end, he was using a cell phone to connect with Zoom, and it just the, the, the video was not very good, and the audio was pretty crappy, cutting in and out, so it just did not make for a good um, interview at all. So you can't scroll down and listen to that, but I think the highlights are on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, talking about it. In the book, he talks a little bit, very little bit, about uh, Einstein and Roswell. Most of it is his thoughts on interstellar flight and physics and gravity, and a long, long section is a reprint of MJ-12 documents, which Don and I will discuss here in a moment. But anyhow, Don, welcome back to A Different Perspective for this second encounter. <laughs> See if we can undo the first, get this one right. So thank you for there you go. that opportunity. Did you, did you read the, the book when Einstein went to Roswell? No, but I did read reviews. I read a number of articles. I read the testimony, the recorded interview with, uh, or the uh, the transcript of the interview with his former assistant secretary, as as the case would be. And I, as we both experience, 
for the fact that we have the foundation, we have the background information that we can cross-check when we see something reminiscent of where we've been, who we talked to, the, the cases we've developed that we know if the person's uh, legitimate or not. And as you and I both quickly observed, there were many flaws, there were many inconsistencies. Uh, you scratch your head and going, you know, I've never heard this before. Uh, describing, for example, the size of the craft, uh, filling up that hangar, you know, that type of thing. Well, if we're talking the hangar that we were always led to, building P3, the B-29 hangar, which is now building 84, uh, I I'm sorry, that, that that's a B-29 hangar and the idea that this was a craft that was large enough to fill up that hangar, how the hell did they get it there? How would they move it to, you know, as far as any, over any appreciable distance? That type of thing. So right. well, the, the advantage problem, we have. The, the problem is, is she's clearly not describing Roswell. I mean, no, no. the base at Roswell, she's describing somewhere else, probably in California. But how big is a hangar? It's like, how long is a piece of road? Right. right. You know, you, there were small hangars for private aircraft. There are huge hangars for... Uh, B-29s or bigger hangars for bigger aircraft. I mean, saying it took up part of the hangar is, is a useless description. Um, there's no evidence that uh, Einstein had her as an assistant. I know a number of people have checked into the background and it just doesn't seem to work out. Uh, he never that, makes reference of any assistant. Like, um, as we both know, like the late uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, I mean, he had an assistant. He had, you went through her, you talked to her, and he often referenced her very respectfully. And so there, there's nothing to suggest that this person was even directly connected to someone of that particular stature, in this case being Albert Einstein. One thing that was interesting, her name is uh, um, Shirley Wright. One thing that was interesting, I mean, she had a fairly well-established academic background and credentials. Mm -hmm. And you listen to the snippets of the interview that had been posted online, and it just sounds very credible the way mm -hmm. she's talking about it. It's not, you don't, you don't see the weasel words that are used by people who are making stories up. Well, I think it might be, or that sort of thing. But the other side of the coin is some of the things she described just make no sense to me. She said that she was... Uh, separated from the rest of the entourage, the party, the, the group of scientists brought down there and stayed in a motel, and yet they're allowing her in the hangar to see the craft in the bodies. This makes no sense to me. If you've separated her out for whatever reason, there's no reason for her to be in that hangar to see that material uh, whatsoever. Correct. And we, we don't have any corroborative evidence of it. And as I said, I I thought that she might have been trying to describe something at Edwards Air Force Base, um, Muroc Air Force Base at the time. At the time, but correct. I, but I think that, um, and we've assumed that it would have been in, in July or August of 1947, which I guess is the dry season there. They don't get much rain, and they would, she talked about them landing in a rainstorm and that sort of thing. So uh, there was just those sorts of things. I talked to uh, Peter Strasberg and... In the conversation, I, I, I took it to the MJ-12 material that he published in his book. And I said, why would you put that in there? And he said, well, I found it online and it seemed very logical and very comprehensive. And I can't believe anybody would make that up. That was his whole argument. 
it wasn't that, um, well, I, you know, I, I found this to be credible because of this, this, and this. I found it to be credible because it seemed that it would be, that it'd be difficult for somebody to make all that stuff up. And I'm thinking, have there would attention? There certainly would have been a connection if Einstein would have been one of the 12. And one could actually argue why certainly someone of that scientific caliber that he wouldn't have been the premier scientist involved if there was indeed an MJ-12. But to just toss it in uh, as fluff, basically, just to fill up pages within a book. That's well, all what he said, to be fair, what he said was he found the stuff online and found it intriguing and, and compelling, and he thought his patients would be interested in it. And he did nothing to validate it, nothing to vet it. And that was the thing that kind of stunned me. I mean, he's a medical doctor, still practicing, he's like 800 years old, and he's still practicing medicine, and more power to him for that. But I would think that someone who had that kind of a scientific training, medical training, when he found something like that, well, maybe there's something else I should look at online. Let's, do, let's type in MJ-12 and see what comes up. And he would have found hundreds and <laughs> hundreds of websites devoted. Yes, you would. Uh, and I, actually, I would, I would raise the question, could he have, or would he have written such a book a year before, two years before, when there was still the stigma, the taboo element as far as of uh, acknowledging any interest, let alone write about it or put your imprimatur as far as on any theory or a, a case for that matter. But is it because of... Um, the potential for disclosure now reaching a point, especially within the government, that at least there's an acknowledgement of a phenomenon, that there is uh, a, a, another category that may be, uh, we may need to focus on right here, whether it's a threat to national security or threat to nuclear facilities, that type of thing. So would he have even written this book? Would Avi Loeb, have been uh, as, as far as within such a, a welcome circle of other scientific uh, 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 colleagues right now, if it would have been a year or two before. So timing think, is everything think, as we know. I think I can answer that having talked to him and I, I, I hesitate to do this, but he had written six other books or seven other books that had a similar vein, not MJ-12 or Einstein going to Roswell, but things in the, in physics or things in astronomy that interested him. So he's written other books that deal with these topics. And the majority of the book deals with um, that sort of um, material as opposed to Einstein. But he also talks about Aztec and he talks about, um, like I said, MJ-12 and, and that sort of thing. And I think it was just something that interested him. One of the questions I did ask him at the time was, uh, had he been in consultation with Tony Begalia because Tony had just published on his website, a um, story about Shirley Wright being the woman who went with, with Einstein to Roswell. And I thought it was kind of a coincidence that his book comes out in August and then we have Tony, Tony's um, uh, website being published not long after that. But he said he hadn't any contact with Tony prior to that. Once Tony put his material on his website, then Peter Strasberg went and took a look at it and found it very intriguing and thought it just reinforced what uh, he had written. So it's kind of one of those things 
there was serendipitous, I suppose. I, you think you think back, you know, um, a number of years ago, there were three movies that came out about deep water exploration, like Deep Star Six, The Abyss, and uh, Leviathan. All mm -hmm. had sort of a similar thing, but it all is like there was some some kind of an idea floating around in floating around in uh, Hollywood that caused studios to make these three movies in a very short period of time, and you just wonder what confluences of information got Strasberg to write his book and Tony to uh, put the uh, information up on his on his website. I guess we, we, we could surmise that certainly something as significant as a crash retrieval, that especially unprecedented, that the one go-to person indeed would have been the likes of an Albert Einstein. But Einstein obviously never let on I, there doesn't appear to be anything that changed in his life as to any commentary or his, you know, reaching for the stars and, and, and starting to talk about space exploration and what may be out there, that type of thing. We've seen this epiphany with a lot of people where they have an experience and all of a sudden, you know, they're instead of looking for loose change in the ground, they're finally gazing up, you know, at the heavens on a daily basis. So uh, let's just say that Einstein never let on. He never gave us even the, the, the smallest crumb to suggest that he had any such knowledge. Well, I think the documentation that we have on who Einstein was and where he was and the information provided by Shirley Knight uh, is suggestive that the story is untrue. I don't understand mm -hmm. why she, as a well-respected, educated woman, would invent this tale but then I know there was a judge in Illinois, I think his name was Michael O'Connor, who uh, told everybody he had earned the Medal of Honor mm -hmm. and he was in the Navy. The guy's a judge. He's got the, the Medal of Honor hanging on his wall. He was exposed when he tried to get Medal of Honor license plates for his car and the, uh, I guess the Department of Motor Vehicles checked with the, the military to see if he had earned the Medal of Honor, and they said, no, we don't have a record of this guy. And it came out that he was making it up for, for literally decades. He had told people he had won the Medal of Honor. And there's why would a judge do something like that? Well, there's an author who I know very well, John Custer Mullen. He, uh, he did, a, uh, one of his books was on Man the Manhattan Project and the actual development of the atomic bomb. He's an expert on the 509th bomb group, the first atomic bomb squad uh, wing, as far as uh, at the at the time, and he uh, he discussed with me one on one occasion how many men throughout his years of research claimed that they were either on Anola Gay or boxcar, those two B-29s, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, over Japan, and none of them were telling the truth, but yet they were making not claims of that sort to their families but to the press they were going public and claiming that they were the navigator they were the bombardier they were you know the radio operator that type of thing and so you would ask well is it one last claim to fame is it where and we've talked about this and not to get into roswell but even the question of jesse marcel senior and why he claims certain things and i, I think it'd be a, a, a study that one could look into where somebody who has felt that 
whether by the military or by family or by uh, an employer or, you know, just life in general, that they felt shortchanged, that they felt that they needed to, you know, you know, elevate their resume to the point that they took claim for things that were far from the truth. Well, let me, break in, let me break in here because I've got, to, I've got to go away. When we come back, we'll explore this a little further with Don Schmidt. We're talking about uh, things from the this year that's happened in ufology and things that have impacted upon it. We'll be back right after this, so please stick around. We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Now get a sausage McMuffin, sausage biscuit, sausage burrito, or hash browns. Choose two for $2.50. Enjoy a large iced coffee for just $2. Price of participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Single item at regular price. We are back with Don Schmidt. We're talking ufology. We were talking the 509th bomb group and people who make stories up uh, to put themselves into events they never participated in. The, the, that was the best example that I have of that. The one that I like the best is in the turn of the last century. That means 1899 to 1900. There were 15 men in various carnivals traveling around the country claiming they were the real Jesse James. Well, you know, 15, 14 of them had to be lying. <laughs> and uh, the 15th was as, as well. But I, I uh, putting yourself into an event that can be historically checked is kind of bizarre to do. Um, there's, there's literally hundreds of thousands of people who claim they served in Vietnam when they did not. But they're not claiming um, to have been in, 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 in something like the, the bombing of Japan or something like that. Uh, I would suggest that a, a lot of older men may believe that they will die before being exposed or that they'll, it'll provide them with an element of fame. It'll give them, the, you know, it'll give them at those 15 minutes. They wouldn't have otherwise. And as they, as could be said, uh, older older people often do silly things. They say silly things that they wouldn't otherwise, and we we provide them with latitude. We excuse it away as well. They're just old older. You know, there's older people, and um, we we have a very good example of that in our country right now. I won't mention any names. <laughs> yes, of, of an we, older person who who keeps plugging himself into events. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And uh, that's I, I think it goes. I think it goes a little deeper than that. I, I just. Um, I don't think they expect to be exposed. I. I think some of them convinced themselves that they really were involved in some of oh, this. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that was Shirley Knight may have convinced herself. I don't know why she would tell that story, um, but she was very or, convincing when she told it. Was she repeating, as we have witnessed uh, with witnesses, that they at times will repeat what they have been told, what they've heard from someone else, now departed, no longer available to challenge, or uh, you know, you know, 
disagree, but nonetheless, it keeps the story alive. It, they become the outlet. They, you know, they, they provide the testimony. Just imagine if we'd have somebody, as many of our witnesses that passed on who took the story with them. And as we both know, there's nothing more frustrating than to find somebody and you speak to their wife, their widow, son or daughter, and oh, they just died a year ago. And the realization that whatever information they possess is gone forever. You lost it. We blew it. We just, we were, we were too slow in making, you know, that final effort tracking them down. But when somebody repeats something and claims it as their own, it doesn't, it's still up to us to determine whether they're, you know, telling an accurate account, describing what we, based on our own investigation, our own research, is telling the truth. And so it's because she's disqualified herself by contradicting everything we know is being, you know, contrary to what others have told us. Imagine if everything she described was, oh my God, we've, we've heard that before. Or that's part of some of the control information that we've never released. We kept to ourselves, uh, lest we contaminate or coach any prospective witnesses, that type of thing in the past. And so why they choose to, you know, speak of something outlandish, something that just on the face of it, it's like, my God, you know, something that practically fills up a hanger. And as I said, you know, how do they even get it there? That type of thing. Um, it's like they haven't done their own research enough to realize that, well, maybe at least I should study Roswell enough to jive with the basic story. And they choose not to. And I think to me, that's, that makes it all the more, you know, you know, what, what's going on in their heads as, as a result of this. Well, I think that you also can take a look at it that may have heard a story from a family member or from a friend about having been involved in something decades earlier and has heard the story often enough or thought about the story often enough that suddenly, not suddenly, but over time, they believe that they were there. They observed this. They were participants in it. I think Elizabeth Loftus has done some wonderful work in that um, when she did the experiment Lost in the Mall and would, would talk to... Yeah. Uh, uh, an adult child of somebody and the parents would say remember when you got lost in the mall and discuss a little bit and pretty soon the, the the child comes up yes I remember that very well and this and this and this and this happened and it may be something like that that they've discussed it with people and they suddenly believe that they were somehow involved in it as well because they have these memories of what they were told and you have to be careful of that sort of thing I guess what we learned from Elizabeth Loftus in, in the studies of some of the uh, memory is how convoluted memory is and how easy it is to confabulate without really understanding what you're doing. I think this is one of the problems with abduction research, uh, which is going to be a nice transition into the next segment. Uh, abduction research, where the hypnotist, the operator, uh, is, is talking to the subject or interviewing the subject under hypno hypnotic regression and the subject says well this happened and I can't remember anything more and the operator says well yes you can there's more there there's more there let's go deeper let's do this technique let's do this technique and eventually the person comes up with some additional material when they are brought out of the hypnotic state they believe the things they have confabulated as being the truth 
even though it was implanted unconsciously or or accidentally by the the uh, interviewer, the the operator, but they begin to believe that's the truth, and now you've really screwed up somebody's whole life. As the case often has been, and all it takes is that one individual to serve as a reinforcer of the confabulation, no matter what it happens to be. And if I can convince one, then I can convince another and another and another. And before you know it, yeah, you are, you're telling the same story over and over again, and it becomes your story, your account, your experience. And in abduction research, the fact that they are going to, at times, trained individuals, doctors, people that, you know, are, are working as far as past life experiences and uh, are doing regressions, trying to uh, bring out detail about whether it was a criminal, a crime or an, an, an abuse or an attack, an assault, that type of thing. We, we've seen that by just adding and just asking leading questions and coaching the individual, that because you feel you're in trustworthy hands that as a result, if they then conclude that you had the experience, who are you to doubt? Who are you to question? They're telling me it happened. It's the real thing. And so you're right. Then I have to live with it, whether it happened or not. And we, 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 we saw that with the this, what was called satanic panic back in the late 1980s, where uh, people were talking about how they had been abused by satanic cults. And an awful right. lot of that was confabulated through the misuse of hypnosis or improper techniques used by the interrogators, the question well, even And even like the son of Sam, uh, where you're hearing voices. And these are people that are just schizophrenic, that uh, they could be multi-personality individuals or you know, just hearing voices that are telling you to do certain things and that's how you justify your, your actions. Well, I'm sorry. Um, these are people that need to be taken from society for their own protection, and but above all else, our protection. Well, I think that kind of brings us to another point of what happened this summer when Mike Rogers, who was with Travis Walton during that abduction, came out and suggested that the Walton abduction was a hoax mm -hmm. and made a big point of saying repeatedly that nobody saw Travis Walton abducted. and and. Mike Rogers, when I talked to him about this, well, I've been saying that for years. Nobody's picked up on it. And I'm thinking, I hadn't heard him say this for years, but it's a valid point. Nobody saw Travis Walton abducted. And we have this story that Mike Rogers says, well, yeah, we saw the UFO and we can attest to that, but nobody saw Travis Walton abducted. Um, what's your take on all of that? Is, that? is that damaging to the Walton abduction tale or is it just sort of, Two old guys now arguing over something that happened decades earlier. I, and I've never met Mike Rogers. I, I've exchanged some email with him in the past. He had inquired about actually attending Roswell Festival a number of years ago. And there was no uh, stipulation that, well, I would not want to do anything with a Travis. I wouldn't want to sit at his table or anything of that sort. So we assume that would even be a given that the two of them would even present together. Um, I've known Travis for many years and I've talked to him many times personally about his family, his grandson, who's very ill 
and uh, just what's going on in his mind after all these years. Uh, the problem with the movie, Fire in the Sky, things like that. So it's gone way beyond just telling the same story over and over again. And as we both, uh, you know, could testify to, is his story hasn't changed. That Travis's, you know, account is basically the same as it has been since 1975. Now, he not, he's not claimed to be involved in multiple abductions. He's not claimed that they've given him secret messages to pass on when the time is right. It's. I think Rogers is probably right on this point that according to the timeline he was able to create, Travis Walton was conscious with the aliens, as he said, for a period of 20 minutes to 30 minutes. And the rest of the time he was unconscious and there was no interaction. Exactly, exactly. And the fact that you're talking about five days of missing time. I don't even call it an abduction. Um, you know, Travis was missing for five days that even under hypnosis, he has just, you know, the basic uh, exchange or, or as far as uh, encounter he has with his uh, visitors, so to speak, and nothing beyond that. So I, I, I agree that he most likely was unconscious during that, that period, if, if indeed that's where he was, okay? Now, no one else has stepped forward to claim that, well, I know for a fact Travis was up in that ranger you know, uh, tower during all that time, or he was back home with his brother and his mother, or that he was with a girlfriend or anyone else. No one else has slipped and said, well, I happen to see Travis here or there. We're not talking about in the middle of summer. We're talking about the snowflake area. And believe me, for having been there at the anniversary a few years ago and have been to the site, I wouldn't want to be up there during the night for any period of time, because you're talking about very frigid, you're talking about uh, hardly uh, as far as uh, supportive of uh, someone spending five days lost up in that, uh, that, that area. And so it still comes back to where the two track, the road that Mike Rogers originally took the authorities, the sheriff, too, as to what and where they saw the object as it ascended out of that valley coming over that particular site. Whereas the Ranger Tower is three miles away, which now has become part of uh, the new scenario. So it's just a case of who can establish where they went back to, because obviously the surviving, like Pierce and Rogers himself, were they able to see beyond the windows of the, of the truck? Were they able to see what was going on to the extent that Travis went out, or went underneath the craft, was struck by that beam of light, and that was the extent of it as they hightailed it from the area? It still well, comes let back me break to in. Let me break in here because I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to take a break. Um, I'll have additional information up at my blog, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com uh, for you to take a look at. When we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit about the lie detector tests, because I think mm -hmm. that is an important aspect of this whole story. So we'll be back talking about Travis Walton, abduction phenomenon, and uh, Mike Rogers claims that nobody saw Travis Walton abducted. We will be back right after this, so please stick around.
I am here with Don Schmidt. We are practicing social distancing because he's in a different state than I am. He's in a state of confusion and I'm in a state of annoyance. No, that's not right. Anyway, when we went away, we were talking about the Travis Walton abduction and uh, some of the things you, you'd mentioned, Steve Pierce, and of course I've met Steve Pierce, I've met Travis Walton, I've, I've uh, met Mike Rogers, which always stuns me when I go back to these great UFO cases and realizing the number of people I've actually met who are involved in them in some, some fashion. But what's interesting is the lie detector test. Travis Walton took a number of lie detector tests. He failed the first one. I think it was probably a flawed test. He took, a, he took a number of other tests, which he passed. Mm -hmm. And then he was on a program called Lie Detector, I think it was. And, uh, and failed. Lie... Right. Yes. I was uh, failed on the question, were you abducted by a UFO? Uh, what do you make of that? Uh, well, we both know that polygraphs are highly inconclusive. Uh, it's one of the reasons, that the primary reason that they are not admissible in a court of law because any good liar can fool a, uh, as far as a polygrapher's interpretation. I think as we get more and more towards AI, artificial, just like with a, like a psychological stress evaluation where they're doing a, a voice analysis where it's actual AI that is doing that interpretation. That's where I think uh, should be the next phase of, uh, of a light detector analysis. Uh, we need to get away from just the possibility of human interpretation because um, I, I'm sure there are cases where two different uh, interpreters conduct the same test and arrive at different conclusions, different resolutions as a result. And, and the fact that if the failures would have been consistent with Walton, then I think we wouldn't even be discussing it right now. But you fail one, you pass another. You fail another, you pass another. So it's like, you know, you choose your ointment, so to speak. And so, and as far as the TV show, it's a TV show. You know, who knows how skewed, because what was the uh, uh, award should he have passed? $100,000, something like that. Well, how often do they ever give that out? So I would question, you know, even the, the pretext of even such a, a situation. Well, Steve Pierce was there when the program was on, when they were filming the program or whatever. And from what I understand, Pierce was just devastated when Walton failed the question mm -hmm. and thought that uh, he'd been duped all these many, many years about that. So I think that... Uh, you know, we've, we've, got it. we've got a problem with the Walton case with, with the lie detectors, but no, I think the bigger problem is you had the six guys hanging together, seven guys hanging together for, again, decades, but now we see cracks in the, uh, in the wall with Roger's comments and Roger's anger about, I guess, being cheated out of money. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and with, with Mike... To me, it's, it's, it's much more of a personal situation. And I think that's where it's between he and, and, and Travis and the rest of us. We, we shouldn't be interlopers. We shouldn't get involved because that's something they need to work up be, between them, them themselves. Uh, the old airing of dirty laundry has, has never 
uh, you know, work well for anyone involved. Uh, it can it can destroy not only reputations, you know, viable, solid, you know, credible reputations, and it's 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 strictly you know just a personal axe, just uh, you know someone's personal animosity towards somebody, and um, it, uh, it 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 it's unfortunate in that. What if it indeed was again a solid case? It was a, you know a, a good case. We just didn't have all the answers to, and just for you know out of a, a personal vendetta, we 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 throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. And I think that's why right now the onus is on Travis. Where what road was that? Was it the road that is three miles away from the the, the Ranger Tower? Because if it can't ever be proven that the actual road that they were exiting was right there by that ranger tower, then there it is. Well, you have to also look at the other side of the coin. The person that has created this doubt in the, in the, in the Walton case the, um, uh, has, a, has an agenda and a financial motivation as well. So he... We don't know uh, what's going on in his mind and, and what his financial inducement was to to talk about this thing or investigate this or create the documentary about it. But if he can come up with the scenario proving that Walton hopes the thing, then that's a much better story than, well, here's one more documentary about Travis Walton, Walton being abducted. So we have to look at the source of the information as well. We have, we have a core of individuals, Mike Rogers and Steve Pierce and uh, Travis Walton and, and the other fellas who pretty well stuck together. Mm -hmm. And I think two of them now have, have now died. Right. So you have a smaller core, but you now have Steve Pierce being somewhat vocal about no longer believing Travis Walton based on that lie detector show, which I think you make a very good point on, that there's, there's an agenda in the program as well. You have Mike Rogers saying, yes, we saw the UFO, but nobody saw Travis Walton get abducted. Right. And so you have the animosity there. And, and, and again, good point. And in fact, in my communications with Walt, I think in the spring or early summer of this year about this, um, I told him at the end, it, as you said, it looked to me as if it was a personal conflict between the two of them that really didn't involve the rest of us. It had really nothing to do with the abduction. It really had nothing to do with the science that we're trying to perform here. It had to do with a personal uh, dispute. It's a family dispute. That's what it is. Yeah. And, and, and I told him I'd bow out at this point. Right. Um, and then um, later on, Rogers appears in the documentary saying the thing was a hoax. Now he says he didn't say it, but that's right. Course, but but of course there's the tape where he does in fact say it. That's right. And I know I know in, in having um, been accused of of fabricating testimony, uh, J. Bon Johnson springs to mind. Um, the, he's the photographer that took the pictures of Marcel and and Ramey and Debose in the office on July um, telling me one thing and then saying something else and saying that I had misquoted him. And I, here's the tape. Listen yes. to yourself say it, you know, uh, that sort of thing. But, See, but if it was, if it was a hoax, 
then what Rogers had to be in on it. That's the yes. point. And Somebody if else he, had to be in on it as well. That's right. And if he was in on it, then it's up to him to then describe and explain and go public with how this was planned out, how it was plotted, and then how it was carried out. Just by, by calling it a hoax says nothing. It proves nothing. Well, the, the, the one thing is Rogers is very clear that the sighting was not a hoax. Everybody right. had the UFO sighting. Right, and right. I'm not sure, given the way confabulation works and, and that sort of thing that we discussed a little bit earlier, that some of that information was manipulated over the years in the, in the memories of the, of the participants in this thing. I'm not saying it was, I'm just saying this, this is a possibility and we understand more about human memory than we did at the, at the time. Uh, but if it was a hoax, Rogers had to be on, in on it, but somebody else had to be on it as well. And of course, the, the obvious candidate for that would be Walton's brother. But um, there's no evidence of that. No, no, there's uh, no crack in that armor. Yes, so to speak. yes. And, and even as far as uh, those who have passed on, there were no deathbed confessions, contrary. And so as far as I'm concerned, the onus is not on Travis. It's on Mike, Mike Rogers right now. Because if you're going to claim that it was a hoax, then you were one of the main participants of that hoax. And it is up to you to then either confess wholeheartedly and explain how this was pulled off. And if you cannot, then it's because you have no knowledge of said hoax. And you can't have it both ways. Because I think there's, there's something else going on here, too. Rogers makes a big deal how he was a witness to the Phoenix Lights in mm -hmm. 1997. And not, not the lights aspect of it, but the triangular-shaped object the triangular that traveled, shape, right, right. traveled over Arizona. And I think if he comes out and says, well, that I participated in this Travis Walton hoax back in 1975, he has now just ruined any credibility he had for anything he talks about, the triangular-shaped object that flew over Arizona in 1997. The fact that there was money involved, the fact that they received at least a, uh, a initial you know, payout from the National Enquirer at that time. I know they uh, were hoping to get the full $100,000 as it was, and I think they got $5,000 split up between uh, the whole, uh, Travis got half and the rest split the balance, whatever, whatever the payout was at that time. So you're talking not just a hoax, you're talking about, you know, they perpetrated fraud. And so I know statute of limitations long, <laughs> but, but, but nonetheless, um, you know, yeah, he'd still, I mean, he's got more at stake in, in making such a pronouncement than even Travis does. Because Travis is never going to claim that uh, he was party to, you know, such a, a situation. Whereas Mike, I, I, I see it was more of a lashing out where he just, he just blurted this out and now he's trying to reel it back in. Well, I didn't really mean to say that. I, I, I just was striking out at Travis for a personal reason and that's all it was. I, I think you're right. I, you know, I'm not a big fan of abduction. I think if anybody who's listened to the program for more than 10 or 15 minutes understands that I just do not accept the, the abduction scenarios as they're laid out in today's environment. But I've told Travis Walton and I've told others that I think that his abduction, if it is legitimate, is more likely, a lot more likely scenario 
than these longitudinal studies that people claim where they're coming into the bedroom and taking you out year after year after year after year. I, I just do not find, I think that is more a manipulation of the, the hypnotist than it is see, that's, the actual situation. Exactly, and, and that's why I don't even, as I said, I don't even call uh, the Walton case an abduction. If, and, uh, and as we both accept that at least Travis has been totally consistent he is not embellished. I mean, he's my God, he's had 45 years, 46 years. And unlike just about every other witness who gets to a point where they start to, you know, uh, sweeten the pot, so to speak, because they want to remain relevant. They want to, you know, still, you know, get invited to conventions, that type of thing. Travis hasn't done that, much to his credit. And I, and I think, and for the reason that he was not abducted, he just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. I think the one thing that's very interesting is, I think of uh, Robert Willingham, who mm -hmm. originally claimed that he participated in the, the one crash. Del Rio, some, yeah. Sometime, sometime uh, in, yeah. in 1948 or 1950, 1954. Yeah, right. But later on, he began talking about other crashes he was there at. Mm -hmm. and he was driving around in Pennsylvania one day and a farmer came over the hill and stopped and said, this thing crashed in my field. I mean, he claimed to have been involved in seven UFO crashes. And I'm thinking this is absolutely preposterous. And he was talking about how one day he was at work and these MPs came in or these air policemen came in and um, irritating him and he, he was going he held up a crowbar and told him to get out and they, they skedaddled and I'm thinking yeah that ain't going to happen because when I was with the military police I normally carried a 45 you come at me with a crowbar right. you're going to lose that fight right. every day of the week but uh, that's your point that they become uh, their, their story becomes old and people are no longer interested in it so they have to come up with something new something better something more interesting like uh, the story George Adamski's the contactees of the 50s. We're going to have to take a break here. When we come back, we will finish up with uh, our discussions, more or less, of what has happened in the last year, wrapping up the, the last year. We've got to some of it, so we've done what we wanted to do. I'll have information about my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. The latest book is UFOs in the Deep State and a level analyst coming out in two or three weeks. So you can take a look at that. We will be back right after this, so please stick around. I am here with Don Schmidt for our last segment on our wrap-up of ufology in the last year. We've we've diverted from that somewhat. I wouldn't say digress. We've digressed. We've diverted from that somewhat, but we've kind of stuck to it. We were talking about the Travis Walton case and alien abductions. I think we pretty well have <laughs> solved our uh, feelings on the Walton abduction, but that doesn't really take us into... Uh, into the overall abduction scenario. What do you make of the overall abduction scenario as it's played out in the last year, two years, three years? We haven't heard a lot of uh, abduction tales uh, lately. Well, no, and what's, what's, what's curious about that is that so often researchers will learn of uh, you know, an abduction situation involving an individual or an entire family, but it happened when they were, when the person was a child or it happened, you know, 25 years before. 
and uh, they're starting to have flashbacks and reoccurring dreams and nightmares and that type of thing. And so there's nothing that can really be investigated. And we've reached a point where now with the passing of uh, Bud Hopkins and uh, Dr. John Mack, and even as Dr. David Jacobs has retired, that uh, it's a question of now where do all the files go? Where does all the uh, information go from all the, and there's almost a bit of a doctor patient type of confidentiality involved. So none of the names can really be publicized because that was the level of trust that was placed in the, uh, the aforementioned. And so it comes down to, uh, well, who's next in line? Who, who's even, and we, we both know Yvonne Smith out in Los Angeles, but who's now the, the heir to, you know, the abduction research, so to speak. Have and you notice that nobody, nobody's lining up. Nobody's stepping forward. And I think that's rather telling because we've been told for years that it's the, that Roswell aside, that the one, the one aspect of the UFO phenomenon that's going to really, you know, present physical evidence once and for all would be the abduction cases. And we're still waiting. Well, we've got people like Leah Haley, who was one of the advocates of the abduction phenomena who has recanted all of mm -hmm. that material. And I think we've run into that more often with people recanting, realizing that some of that was implanted. I know Richard Boylan got into trouble for implanting um, information in the minds of his patients. They probably he actually got in trouble for, for other things as well. But I, I, if you look at the transcripts of some of these um, sessions with the with the uh, subject of the abduction you can you can see the uh, implantation of the ideas and I think as I said much much earlier I think part of it's unconscious by the the operator by the hypnotist Bud Hopkins um, had once issued a challenge as you know, show where I've led the patient led the, the subject and I said, challenge accepted. And I did a blog about this where I looked at the transcripts that he himself had published. And you could see the areas where he was, I think unconsciously, uh, implanting ideas in the minds of those he was hypnotizing. I don't think he realized he was doing it. I don't think he understood the implications of that. I think some of the things we now understand about hypnosis helps us understand that better. One, one of the other areas, for example, and you mentioned Bud, and very often we would sit Bud down in Chicago at, at CUFOS, at the Center for UFO Studies, and that they were presenting too much data, too much detail. They were, you know, describing, you know, these uh, experiences to the level that they were contaminating the, the subject, that they weren't, uh, you know, retaining uh, control information that they could then, well, so-and-so described certain symbols, you know, inside the craft. And I, these have never been published before. And here they are, they're identical, you know, to this individual and that individual, that type of thing. And so it was something that uh, we wished very early on that they would have heeded our recommendations that they just didn't seed as far as uh, the potential for all these other people stepping forward with similar information and saying, see, patterns, you know, look at, they're all describing the same event. Well, it's because you've already painted 
you know, the scenario. You've already created that this is how you go from point A to point B and so on. And that's the fault of the researchers who, you know, in their desire to be the, uh, the, uh, the winner of the foot race, so to speak, who's going to solve the, the mystery, you know, before anybody else. They uh, were constantly patting themselves on the back and saying, see what we've uncovered, see what we've, uh, you know, researched, see what we have here to present to the public. And that's, to me, that's not scientific. You, 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 you have to duplicate effort. You have to triplicate. You have to be able to de demonstrate that within a, a lab setting before anything is publicized, that it repeats itself over and over again. And that's not in the public arena. You may disagree, but to me, that's it. One of the things that's interesting, Mackin said, John Mackin said, that there was a curious matching between the abduction researcher and the abductee, meaning that John Mack found abductees with an Easter philosophy, and, and, and John uh, um, Jacobs found the, the hybrids. And, the threats, and, right. And, and, and Mack found... Uh, I mean, say Bud Hopkins found a more scientifically oriented crew, and Mac was pointing out it was a strange matching, and, and we suggested, well, maybe it's because you're finding exactly what you're looking for, as opposed to being a matching, which is exactly what you were saying. Yeah, they transferred their own philosophies, their own ideology. Uh, in the case of Dr. John Mack, that he was very much an environmentalist. And that in his case, these people were vanguards. They were selected to save the planet. Uh, with Bud, it was where they were assaulted. And with Jacobs, it was a case of where there was a hybrid race being created, that they were infiltrating, that it was becoming the threat that was going to eventually take over. So three different philosophies, and yet the same people having these experiences, but yet they came away with three different missions, assignments as to what they had experienced totally transferred to them by the so-called researcher who was investigating their case. Coral Lorenzen said something to me once that um, after I had talked to Patty uh, Price. Pat Roach. Pat Roach, yes. Patty Price yeah. was the name I made up for her, Pat Roach, uh, mm -hmm. about when she drew the alien and had a Sam Brown belt on. And she mm -hmm. said, this is something we haven't told other, we haven't publicized because we're holding that back. And she says, so these, the um, abductees don't know this bit of information. And I'm thinking, yes, but all the researchers do. Yeah. And so when you get a matching of these sorts of things, you have to wonder if that was an implantation by the, um, the, the, the researcher, or was it something that they independently, the, the abductee independently observed? And when I we consider who originally you know, started the abduction research, Dr. the late Dr. James Harder of Berkeley, and then just the recent passing of our friend, uh, Dr. Leo Sprinkle, University of uh, Wyoming. Wow. Yeah. Um, and in both cases, just one leading question after another. What color were their eyes? What color, you know, how, uh, uh, you know, what color was their skin? That type of thing. Um, you know, just everything was planted within as far as the scenario by the researcher. Well, with Harder, Harder uh, I observed something when we were doing the Pat Roach um, research. Um, we have conversations between the sessions, of course, 
And I remember him talking about Barney and Betty Hill to Pat Roach. And, and Betty Hill had said she thought there was a lot of little Betty Hill running around out there suggesting there was some kind of physical examination of that sort of thing. In the very next hypnotic regression session, Pat Roach says, um, I don't remember being uh, examined, but I know I was. Harder mm -hmm. had implanted that between sessions. So you, so had I not been there, I would not have known that, but it would have seemed that there was a corroboration of the Betty Hill thing. And Harder told me that that was his mission was to corroborate Betty Hill. So, I mean, he kind of ruined his scientific attachment by doing that. And we have to be careful too, that very often the uh, so-called abductee feels an obligation that they have to provide that uh, there would be a level of embarrassment or obligation should they not describe a standard abduction scenario, that they're almost as though it's pre-scripted based on who you're working with, that this is what they expect from me. And as a result, again, um, how much, again, is actual physical reality as opposed to how much of it is orchestrated between the two? Um. In psychological research, there's something called pleasing the operator. There have been studies about this, and you find that you can lead the hypnotic subjects in all sorts of directions if you're not very, if you're, if you're sloppy in your question, if you're not careful in your question about where you're once, attempting to go. Once they're in that trance, they're so easily manipulated. And, and Betty, with Betty Hill, of course, she had written to uh, Kehoe, Don Kehoe at NICAP, right. that she wanted to undergo hypnotic regression. A, a line that was left out of the letter as it was published by John Fuller in his book, Interrupted Journey, when they published the copy of the letter, left that line out because it's very suggestive of what happened. Yes, she yes. Was looking, she was looking for hypnotic regression to find out exactly what happened, but she was also interested in UFOs. So it wasn't as she was a complete novice. Uh, I was going to use a different word and I thought I'd get in trouble for it. Uh, uh, in ufology, she was well aware of what was going on in ufology. Uh, at the time. So it's, it's not as if it was something that was completely spontaneous. It was something that was kind of in the back of her mind. And, it, and at a time in, you know, around 1961, 62, where hypnosis generally was not regarded as a, uh, thera a therapeutic tool, that it would be used, and it certainly wasn't being used as far as, uh, as, far as the regression of information in uh, of a missing time situation. So this was virgin territory. Uh, that's why it was the first time that obviously Dr. Benjamin Simon, you know, from, uh, from Boston, you know, he had never had anything of, of this sort before because it wasn't that they were, you were looking for a UFO experience as much as you were trying to account for missing time. Two motorists, two people in a car late at night, and they could not account for a certain, you know, traversing of distance and time you know, within their trip home. And so uh, it's not like this was something that they read in another book at the time. So. Well, I see by the clock on the wall that we're out of time. We could go for another hour, I'm sure. Uh, talking about- And we will, and we will, because we haven't got to Twining too. We haven't got to any of the, uh, the recent, as far as uh, congressional- Yes, uh, yes, yes. And I, I, have, I have my notes right here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on that stuff so we'll have to do we'll have to we'll have to meet up again here pretty quick maybe we'll do another retrospective after the first of the year but anyhow Dodge, 
thanks for taking two hours of your important time to chat with me and the rest of the audience about uh, your experiences with UFOs. And I think we've, we've learned quite a bit. So thank you very much. Well, it and, always goes quickly and it's always great to be with you, Kevin. And I wish you all the best. You know that. Well, thank you. Same to you. And Merry Christmas as well to you. Uh oh, I just, I just, I just told them when we've done this. Uh, but, uh, and your book is, the latest book is Celebrity Encounters Touched. with... Touched by Roswell, Close Encounters of the Rich and Famous. So. Okay, and you've got a book coming out on Roswell in, for the 75th anniversary. And it's the, the uh, re-edition of Witness to Roswell. Yes, and I have a book coming out called Understanding Roswell for the 70th anniversary. You're the first one oh, I've read this to, and now everybody knows it. So I'll be looking about that same time your book comes out, we'll do competing book uh, tours and that sort of thing. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you, Kevin. Great to be with you. So for those of you who have been paying attention here, um, the blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. You can find us on the X-Zone Broadcast Network at xcbn.net. And there's a lot of fine programs uh, in the catalog over at the X-Zone um, website. So take a look at those. Uh, take a look at UFOs and the deep state. I think it explains a little bit about how we've reached this place in the UFO research. Take a look at Roswell in the 21st century, which will be uh, out, is out now. Uh, Encounter in the Desert about Socorro and the Leveland book. That's the one I was thinking of. It'll be out here in the very near future. Take a look at that. I will be back um, after the Christmas holidays to chat with you about UFOs and the unexplained. So thank you for tuning in.